four years ago in August, four fast years ago in August that uh, that we moved here and we were here for a week. We were here for uh, a second week and I was so excited to have my folks come and uh, see our new church home. I'm so excited to have um, them come and see our new physical home and, and uh and so a phone call came, and it was uh, a phone call from my mom letting me know that um, my uncle um, was rapidly passing away. He had just retired, and, and uh, was rapidly passing away, and, and that um, he may, in fact, die in the near future. Sure enough, two weeks later, we'd lived here for one month, and um, it was the fall, the kickoff of the fall ministry season here, so lots of busy things, and uh, my uncle passed away. And I was asked if I would come to Seattle and to uh, officiate at the service. And, of course, I was honored to be able to do that. In that process, um, I flew from here to Seattle on a Friday afternoon, went to men's fraternity here, and then uh, flew to Seattle. And uh, like a hundred times before, my parents picked me up at the airport. They'd done that many, many, many times. We had our kind of routine. Like a hundred times before, my mom gave me a gift. She always gives me a gift every time I saw her. Like a hundred times before, my dad had some instruction that he was going to give me. Normal thing. For those of you who've been to Seattle, the airport's halfway between Seattle and Tacoma. And uh, the funeral that we were going to be a part of was in Everett, Washington, which is about 60 miles north. And so um, we were uh, staying at a hotel in, uh, in the south end of Seattle, needed to drive up to the north end of Seattle um, in, in rush hour. So we left around 3.30 or 4 o'clock. We were going to have supper with my aunt and, uh, and a couple of cousins talking about the life of my uncle on a Friday night before we were going to do the service on Saturday. Are you tracking with me? Okay, so uh, we're driving uh, from the south end of Seattle uh, through the interstate, uh, through, through downtown Seattle. And as, uh, as circumstances would have it, my mom and dad, who were sitting in the front seat of their caravan, I'm sitting in the back seat, my mom says, poor Aunt Betty. Can you imagine? They've worked all their lives. They've looked forward to retirement all these years. And, and now Uncle Mike's been retired for less than a year, and, and he's lost his life. Poor Aunt Betty. I wasn't planning on saying this. I hadn't thought it before, but the circumstances of God just caused me to say this. I said, poor Aunt Betty. I said, Mom, tell me about you. How is it that 50 years ago, when you lost your husband, what was that like when you lost your first husband and you had a three-year-old daughter? What was that like? And by the way, you're from South Dakota, Mom. How is it that you ended up in Seattle? And she tells me a little bit about that story. And I said, well, where did you live in Seattle? We're traveling 70 miles down, 70 miles an hour down the interstate. And sure enough, my dad says, well, she lived about a mile and a half right over there. Do you want to go see where she lived? I'm thinking, well, yeah, I would like to go see where she lives. So uh, we pull off the interstate and we go and we look. Do you believe in the sovereignty of God? Do you believe that God orchestrates things? Do you believe that God is in control of all things? I do. We pull off the interstate, we go and we look at this house that my mom and her husband lived in 50-some years ago. We uh, then kind of recount how my mom and dad met three years after my mom's first husband passed away. And uh, then we go and see my dad's house. We see the church where my parents are married. And they started rekindling some relationship stuff that was 50 years ago. I mean, I kind of felt uncomfortable in the back seat of the car, right, <laughs> as this is unfolding. Long story short... Uh, it was kind of a cool moment 
We get back on the interstate. We go up and we visit my aunt and uh, have supper. And the next day we do the funeral. I was so grateful to the Lord that he gave us that little window in time. I believe that the sovereignty of God and the circumstances of God are such that he cares very much about those things in our lives. We're going to see that exact same thing in uh, Jesus's intersection today with uh, this woman at the, in the town of Nain. My hope is that your heart's going to be encouraged, that the truth of God's word will illustrate that Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive in this word, and Jesus is alive today, and he cares very much. I prayed that you would leave today with expectancy, that you'd leave today with your heart and your mind, realizing that Jesus Christ cares very much for you and cares very much about the circumstances that you find yourself in right now and is not, by any stretch of the imagination, unaware of where you're at. My sense is that Satan, one of Satan's chief goals, chief tools to kind of bring discouragement for us is to give us a fatalistic attitude, a a seed of doubt that it'll never change. She'll never change. She's always going to be that pessimistic person, or he'll never change. He's always going to be that angry guy, or my boss will never change, and so my circumstances at work won't change, or the addiction is so deeply entrenched that we won't ever get through that, or our marriage, our relationship is beyond reconciliation. Yet I'm here to proclaim today that Jesus Christ lived and died and rose again to counter Satan's deception, and that God can change things that Jesus is alive, he speaks forcefully, and he is fully concerned about that which concerns us. Jesus is the Son of the Most High, he's Emmanuel, he's God with us, and the entire Bible points to the fact that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and every single paragraph in this ultimately points to Jesus Christ. With that as a given, let's take a look at our text for the day. Luke chapter 7, verses 7 or excuse me, verses 11 through 17. Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. We've seen historically that Jesus, he overcame Satan's temptation. He cast out demons. He heals diseases. And now we're going to see that he actually raises somebody from the dead. Can you imagine that? He's going to raise somebody from the dead. Pretty fascinating story. Luke chapter 7, verse 11. Soon afterwards, soon afterwards, the moment before, the day before, Jesus had, had uh, been in Capernaum, and he had healed this centurion's um, soldier. He'd, he'd healed a man. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. And he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea, and the surrounding countryside. Four observations. The obedience of Christ, the compassion of Christ, the power of Christ, and the people of Christ. The obedience of Jesus Christ. Soon afterwards, the next day, the next day after he was in Capernaum, he goes to this town called Nain. 
names a little town. It exists today, 200, maybe 300 people. It's a nondescript town. It's an insignificant town. I wonder if it's a town like many of you might have been raised in. I wonder if it's a town or a place that in some ways kind of feels like your life at some level, somewhat insignificant, somewhat nondescript. It was 20 miles from Capernaum. In essence, it was from Christchurch to O'Hare. It was from Christchurch to the Wisconsin border. God knows why you'd want to go there. It was from Christchurch to Northwestern. It was a long walk, likely on a hot day. Jesus was likely, you know, like every other day, he was likely up early in the morning praying to God the Father, and he gets this download of information. I want you to go to Nain. I suspect he did not know. He was fully God, and he was fully man. I suspect that he did not know at that moment that God asked him to go to Nain to heal somebody. I suspect out of obedience, he went to Nain, not necessarily knowing what God was going to do with him. But it was the will of the Father that he goes on a long walk that day, and it says that he took lots of people with him or that people were magnetically attracted to him. I just wonder if there's any indication of the fruit in our lives if we see that people are magnetically attracted to us. Do we see that people kind of want to walk with us? Do we see that some sort of a crowd gathers? Now, it doesn't need to be a crowd of multitudes of people, right? But are there two or three who regularly are saying, I want to walk with you, I want to learn from you, I want to glean from you? Is your life magnetic in such a way that that might be the case? And if not, should we pay attention to that? I can't think of a... In essence, Jesus was discipling people, right? As he's walking along, he's discipling. He's saying, notice notice that person over there? Here's what you might want to think about with that person. Notice how that person inter- intersected and, and notice the kindness there. Notice the hostility there. Here's some things you might want to think about. I suspect that was much of what Jesus did on a day-to-day basis. I can't think of any higher kind of connectivity than moms have with kids regularly as you're raising kids up. And I can't think of any harder job than when moms are raising kids up because you know much more than I would. But the reality of consistently pouring into their lives as infants, as toddlers, as tweens, as, uh, as young adults to pour into their lives when they're often not responsive, when they're often not seeming to get it, when they're often hostile, when they're often embittered for whatever reason or they're alienated for whatever reason, my sense is that Moms in particular have this opportunity to pour in in some very, very strategic ways of God that uh, that's the highest purpose I can think uh, of to imagine. So um, God doesn't always tell us why we're going to go where he goes, but he asks us to go. And my sense is his mission, his purpose for us is always clear in his mind's eye and not necessarily in ours. There's no unexpected kind of coincidences that happen. It was not a coincidence that I asked at that very moment as we're traveling down Interstate 5 in Seattle, um, why, Mom, is it that you lived here? Where is it that you lived? And that my dad says, well, she lives right over there. Do you want to go see it? No no coincidence. Nothing taken by surprise for God. So um, as Jesus approached the town gate, he's walked 20 miles. In likelihood, it's late in the day, right? As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with her. The ESV version says that as he drew near the gate, behold, 
a man who had died was being carried out. So people normally, I mean, death was a pretty common occurrence when someone died and there was a funeral procession. Many people from the town joined in. So there was a number of people in this funeral procession, and it's likely that the mother was leading the procession. Jesus meets the procession at the very moment that he's walked 20 miles. He steps into the town gate, and this procession intersects. Is that just by chance? It was a tragedy that this young man died. It was devastating. This woman, she'd already lost her husband, her provider, her protector, and now her son. The word says here, her only son, her only hope for a future by way of provision. You know, the Bible has some regularity of talking about the only son. If you read in Luke chapter 8, Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading because his only daughter was dying. In Luke chapter 9, verse 38, uh, the word says, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. Hebrews 11 says, uh, it's basically recounting Genesis, By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promise was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Isaac was going to give up his son out of obedience to the will of God. There's another verse in John, John chapter 3, 16. You know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Everything in the Scripture points to the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything. He cared. Jesus was a Jesus is a God of compassion. He cared. Imagine the widow's desperation. Imagine that she wished, God, how can this be? What will I do with my life? What future do I have? Would she even want to continue to live? Desperate beyond measure. She didn't even know what she needed. She lost her last means of support. She may have been easily a a victim of, of swindlers that could have taken advantage of her. It could have been that she had a life absolutely reduced to begging in any form whatsoever unless unless somehow God shows up and this is just what happened this woman was just the kind of person that Jesus had come to help and Jesus had the power to bring hope out of tragedy as scripture says here he he bursts onto the screen so to speak in the most desperate of places Grief insurmountable, fear of the future, completely overwhelmed. His heart went out to her and he says, what? Don't cry. Don't cry. Have hope. Recognize even that you don't seem like you have hope. I will provide hope. Ephesians says this. Ephesians 3, verses 18 to 20 are, are extraordinary verses. But the second half of that verse, 19 and 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that's at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ throughout all all generations forever and ever to do more than we can hope for, ask, or imagine. Her son was dead. She could have never hoped for or thought to ask or imagine. And yet that's what the text says happened. 
It's often very interesting to see the very first thing Jesus says when he intersects with someone in the Bible. In this case, he says, don't, don't cry. His approach was completely different than everyone else. Everyone else's, you know, well, don't cry, it'll do you no good. His approach was, don't cry, I've got hope for you. Do not weep. I'm going to show up in a way that will just absolutely bless you. Why? Because the Word of God is true. This is what the Word of God says in both Isaiah and Revelation. Revelation 21.4. There will be no more death or mourning, no crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Jesus was compassionate, and he knew that he was going to be able to deliver, in this woman's case, in a way that... um, Bless her richly. Lamentations 3 says this, The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases. His compassion never fails. This Lord that we serve is a remarkably obedient Lord, obedient to the will of God the Father. We need to check that in our lives. Are we obedient to the things of God? This Lord Jesus is remarkably compassionate. Uh, Matthew 9 says this, When Jesus saw the multitudes, he felt compassion upon them. When he met a leper, he was moved with compassion. His heart broke to see this widow's sadness. He hadn't set out looking for it, but he was a Savior in every way. There's no indication in the passage that Jamie spoke on, the centurion passion, a couple of weeks ago, and there's no indication here that this person was a follower of Jesus Christ. And yet God spoke into his life and raised him. What's that say to us? It says a couple of things. We cannot earn our salvation. We cannot earn our resurrection. We can do nothing for ourselves. It's all God and all God alone. Take a look at the passage in Isaiah. Can you put that passage up, Isaiah 63? The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me, Jesus says, to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. Do you feel that way sometimes? Do you feel like you're captive? Do you feel like you're in the darkness of a prison? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. That's the Lord that we serve. That's the Lord that wants to deliver. That's the Lord that showed up for this widow. Jesus comforts people like you and me, people who are broken. Larry just indicated that his mom passed away two or three months ago. There's real grief in that, right? The amount of pain that is in this room at this very moment, that which is known and that which is not known, that which is spoken and that which is so hard that it's impossible to even put words to the complications of life that which has been robbed from you that which you so much would like to hope for or believe in and yet if you're completely honest you you're afraid to even ask this is the Jesus 
This is the cross that made all the difference in the world. And so regularly you will be asked, will I plant the flag? Will I step in faith when there seems to be no hope whatsoever, trusting that God will deliver? Now we're seeing a miracle in today's passage. A dead guy comes to life. Are you kidding me? (laughs) We may or may not see that in our life. But do you believe that a dead marriage can come back to life? Do you believe that a totally dysfunctional relationship can come? You can't do it. But the power of the Holy Spirit of God can. And I just want to encourage us to believe that and to trust in that and to be interceding for that for our, for ourselves and for those who we love when nothing else will do. The power of Jesus Christ. He came up and he touched the coffin. He actually touched the stretcher. It looked more like a stretcher. And the bearers came to a halt. They just stopped. Jesus says, young man, I say to you, arise. He spoke and this guy exploded back to life. How else to describe it? He, He rises He comes back to life at Jesus' words. Jesus didn't even touch him by the power of his word. Psalm 33, 6 says this, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth the stars were created. Psalm 33, 9 says, He spoke and it came to be. Without even being asked, Jesus just radically changed this world for the widow and for her son. He sat up. It's he had to have come to life. He spoke. There's evidence that he spoke there. And there are parallels of this in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We see other places where the very same kinds of things happen, where uh, Elijah and Elisha, and we see Peter, and uh, we, we see all sorts of times when others spoke, brought life back. And it wasn't the person who did that. It was the power of God who did that. Oftentimes speaking life into others for us involves prayer whether it's physical resurrection or just spiritual resurrection the power of words and the power of prayer john piper says this about prayer prayer is an expression of belief that jesus turns things around do you believe that jesus turns things around you believe that jesus cares enough to show up And he cares enough to show up for the people of God. The people of Jesus Christ, we are all dead in Christ. And we need God to speak into our lives. And we are lost without him. This story is largely a story of salvation, is it not? A dead guy needs Christ. Christ shows up. He's resurrected. We are dead in our sin. Christ shows up and we are resurrected if we say yes to him. In this case... We can't do anything. In our, in our case, we can't do anything. In, in that man's case, he could not do anything either. Ephesians 2, 2 1 says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and, and your sin, and it was God who made all things new. I'm going to read something out of Revelation as I prepare to close, and I'm going to tell you a story. Revelation chapter 3, you may sit here and say, well, that's good, and I'm glad that God did that for that person, but I'm pretty good. I'm in a pretty good space right now. 
And I just encourage you to think, are you really? Revelation 3, verse 14. To the angel at the church in Laodicea. I'm going to read seven verses here. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. God writes this. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I've acquired wealth, and you don't need a thing. But you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. That's what God wants for us. He wants us to recognize that our, our riches, everything that we can do to try to earn his favor, it doesn't matter. We are dead apart from him, and in him we have great life. I began by telling you the story about God's sovereignty in my life when my uncle passed away. It wasn't a great time to go to Seattle. It was ministry season starting. We just moved to a new home. Lots was going on. It wasn't a great time in any way, shape, or form. I went out of obedience. I wanted to honor my parents. I wanted to honor my aunt. I wanted to honor the memory of my uncle. I flew there on a Friday, had plans to come back late on a Saturday night, on a red-eye Saturday night, so I could be here on Sunday morning, which I was. On uh, that Saturday morning, uh, 10 o'clock service, uh, we... uh, had a great service, and on the way back from the service, we, uh, my mom said what she'd said a thousand times before. She says, Mom couldn't be more proud of a son than I am of you. You did a great job. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for believing in your uncle. Thank you for pouring into our family. Thank you. You blessed us. My dad said a few nice things. We got back, uh, big funeral. We got back to the hotel where we were staying, and we did what our family does uh, every Saturday in the fall. We watched our favorite college football teams. <laughs> we watched the University of Minnesota Golden Gophers. We watched the Tennessee Volunteers, and we watched the University of Washington Huskies. They all lost that day. <laughs> but we had a great time. You shared a meal. We uh, hung out by the pool. My brother, his family, my sister and her family, me, my mom, and dad, we had a great time. Great time. Six o'clock came, had a last uh, kind of supper together. And uh, then my brother, he needed to head back to Salem, Oregon, four, four hours south. And my sister lived an hour south. She needed to head back around 7.30, o'clock. And my flight was uh, 11.30 red-eye flight to get back here. So 9 o'clock or so, we started talking about going to the airport. My mom said, uh, well, your dad and I will take you. And, and I'm like, Mom, you're 75 or however old you are. You don't need to go to the airport, you know. No, 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 I want to go to the airport. I want to go to the airport. I, uh, 
okay, if you want to go to the airport, you go to the airport. So we all go to the airport, my mom, dad, and I. They dropped me off at the airport. We had a great time. Great time. The sovereignty of God. God cares about everything. He cares very much about families. He cares very much about the details of our life. Came home. Had a great church service. So glad that I was here that day. Had an opportunity to intersect with some really cool people and had some great intersections. We had a deacon meeting that night. Went to that deacon meeting. Got home about 8.30. Was really tired because I'd been going pretty hard. Got into bed around 9, 9.30. About 10.30, the phone rang. My dad called and he says, um, Garth. He says, is your dad? He says, your mom died. I don't know what to say, but your mom's died. Perfectly healthy. Jesus was in Nain. Jesus was in Capernaum. He travels to Nain to intersect with a person who had passed away. And he changed that person's life. Every single detail of our lives matters. And to think that it doesn't, to think that your words of encouragement, to think that your prayers, to think that you're working towards reconciliation, to think even that the self-examination of the Revelation verse, that's hard to hear those verses that I read just now. It all matters. And it most certainly matters to God. What shall we do? We should walk in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Because when we do those things, the church multiplies.